So happy Lord's Day and happy New Year's. I'm Joel. Welcome if you're joining us online. And I am joyful because the Lord is come. Jesus Christ has come. We celebrated his birth a week ago and his coming gives us hope in the new year. You see, Christmas changes everything. All is new because of Jesus, because all is new in Jesus. All is new because of Jesus, because all things are new in Jesus. And to see this, I actually want us to go back in time, to time travel back to a time before there was Christmas. Today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 42, a day of futility when they found no answers in the world and in and of themselves. In order to help us see how bad it was before Jesus came, I want to invite you on a brief trip to Narnia. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books, The Chronicles of Narnia, his first one being The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Maybe some of you have seen the movie. Well, this is a fantasy world, Narnia, that you can only enter into by getting, climbing into an old wardrobe. And four children, Peter, Susan, Ed, Edmund, and Lucy, they're the privileged children who find it. But Narnia was not a wonderful place when they first discovered it. Lucy is the first to arrive, and she meets Mr. Tumnus, this funny-looking creature. He has the head and the torso of a human being, minus the horns, and then he has his lower part is a goat with a tail. And Mr. Tumnus, he invites Lucy over to his place for tea, and all seems well and wonderful until Mr. Tumnus starts breaking out in tears, sobbing, because Narnia is the unhappiest place she could have ever come to. He tells her that everyone in Narnia is underneath the thumb of the white witch, and he says this, it's she that makes it always winter. Always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. Let's take a moment and heed Mr. Tumnus and actually think of that. Imagine it's always winter and never Christmas. What if there are no end to the Indiana winter? It's a lot warmer, I know, than last week. Many of us couldn't even make it to church last Sunday, right? Because of the bitter cold, the blizzard condition, ice on the roadways. What if today was the exact same? And tomorrow? What if there is no need for any weathermen because the weather never changed? It was only bitter, cold winter. No fall with its colors, no summer heat, no spring for the thaw. Always winter. Always more dark time, dark night than daylight. Forever frigid. Freezing, unfriendly. Frost to fight every single morning. Bitter and bleak. Those wintry winds that whip, nip at you till they numb you. What if there is no Christmas tree last week with the colorful trimmings? No presents to unpeel. No songs to sing. No New Year's because nothing was ever new. All because a mean magician's main mission was to make all mankind as miserable as she was. This is the land of Narnia that the children discovered. And then to their horror, they hear that their brother Edmund has been imprisoned after tasting the witch's dainties. All is despair. They're horrified until they meet 
a whiskered prophet, Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver recites to them an ancient rhyme about a hero who's now on the move. Here's what he says. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows shall be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. My friends, welcome to Isaiah 42. God's servant who, like Aslan, has come to make all things new. Now hear the word of our God from Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice and he will not be, grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news that you are making all things new. Lord, may we uh, abandon the former things and will you fill us with joy over the new things that have come in Christ. Leave none of us here unchanged. Our time is short. Our need is great. Have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So Isaiah 42 introduces to us the servant Savior. It's actually the first of four songs we find in Isaiah. Israel was the servant. You often find that in Isaiah. But actually, God now holds forth a new servant. Now, before we dig into this song, let us first recognize who the singer of this song is. We just sang songs from us to God, right? Well, God is the singer of this song. This is a song God is singing from him to us. God is singing to us about this servant he will send to rescue a world from nonstop winter. This is not Isaiah's song. I want us to understand. This is not Isaiah's idea. This is not man's idea of a rescue plan. No, if you're a Christian, your song is all about your salvation that is found in God, in Christ Jesus, his servant. In Christ alone, our hope is found. That is our song. And is our song every new year. You see, the point here is that his servant starts it, his servant sustains it, and his servant succeeds in it. 
Our salvation is all of Jesus. We didn't figure out a plan to make it to God. No, God made a plan to rescue us. And God and his servant, the Father and the Son, they get all the glory. That's the point of this song that promises a better day, a new day in a world that's majorly messed up. And chapter 42 is actually God's answer to chapter 41's failure of mankind and its idols to bring salvation to our world. See, in Isaiah's day, every nation, they had idols. You see this, the ancient pagan cultures, there's idols everywhere. There's thousands of them. And they believed that these would provide them hope. You have folks looking for help and healing. They're bowing down to stone, to wood, to metal images, objects that they believe. They offer sacrifices. They believe these idols, they can save them and bring healing to humanity. So God in chapter 41, I invite you to look at it later on. He sets up a courtroom and he tells the nations, bring your idols and offer evidences. Verse 21 reads, set forth your case. Bring your proofs so that we can know that these idols you worship are truly God's. God says, what have they done to set the world right? And what lasting good can they do? In Isaiah's day, you have Babylon, you have Assyria, the great empires, Greeks about to rise up. Actually, Rome's established right about this time. By the way, where are they now? Anybody worried about what Assyria might do to the world today, (laughs) or Babylon, or, or Rome? That's why God declares in verse 24, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And then God declares a second behold in verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The word there in Hebrew is ruach. And you remember the movie Dumb and Dumber? <laughs> That's God's verdict here. God is saying your idols are dumb and you are dumber for choosing to worship them. Your world is no better off for all your fervor and fidelity to these. Now, if God held court for proud ancient empires, God speaks to modern nations as well. Aren't today's world leaders promising to bring healing to humanity? They set up science and technology. Here's one idol. Financial markets. Military might. Ah, better morals that we've never had before. They say equality on earth. They promise that. They're going to purify our planet's pollution. They actually promise peace by power. What does God say? It's all delusions that cannot heal. They only usher in the endless winds of endless winter. Empty winds of endless winter. Last week, I heard more than a few folks say they're ready for something new and better. I kept hearing that. I heard many sad souls saying, I hope 2023 will be better than this year. Anybody else hear that last week? How about you? Do you want a new and a better 2023? Then the message for you today is to turn from idolatry to Christ Jesus. Turn from idolatry to Christ Jesus. Chapter 41 is saying, is God saying, behold the idolatry and the idolaters. And now chapter 42, he says, behold my servant. Behold my servant. Verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud 
or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. God is singing. In contrast to all the fake and futile idols, behold my servant genuine and just. He's the real deal. Unlike the idols, which are empty wind, ruach, I have put my spirit, ruach, the spirit of the Lord, upon my servant. Unlike the wicked who war and, and wreck the weak, my servant brings justice. Now, God clearly has a relationship with this servant. He says, it's my servant. You are my servant. The chosen one in whom his soul delights and on whom he has put his spirit. Does this recall a scene that happened 600 years later? The end of Matthew 3. Jesus of Nazareth steps into the Jordan River to be baptized. And what happens? The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Why does the Father say that at this scene? Well, first for his Son's sake, for Jesus' sake, but also for ours. The reason the Father says, Behold my servant whom I delight in, is so that you should see, you should delight in him too. We should all delight in Jesus Christ every day. God has just declared in chapter 41, there are no idols worthy of our worship, none who can equip the nation or the world to bring healing to humanity, to bring peace to people. And now he calls the floor, come in, my servant. And he says, look who I delight in. I think this implies divinity, don't you? As God contrasts his servant with the idols everyone else is worshiping, a servant able to rescue the world that's under the evil thumb of a wicked ruler. Notice this servant three times. He's going to bring justice to the nations. We find that. That's the main point here. Now, in case you think I've identified this servant as Jesus too quickly, Matthew will actually quote this verse here, verses 2 and 3 in chapter 12 of his gospel, saying Jesus is the one Isaiah prophesied. So as an aside, um, I encourage you to a Bible reading plan if you don't already have one. There's never a better day to start a Bible reading plan than today. And how nice, it's January 1st. I'm happy to recommend one to you. Do you want hope in the new year? Start each day, not by grabbing your phone and filling your head and your heart with social media or the news and the people smiling with all their worldly wisdom. No. You want to be changed? You want a better hope in the new year? First, start with this book that knows you better than you know you. And second, you'll find Christ here in every page. Everything points to Christ. In Isaiah's day, it points to Christ. The Gospels point to Christ. Paul and the letters point back to Christ. This whole book points to him who gives us hope and who brings us justice, which actually isn't the best word here, though I, I can't find an alternative. The justice of Jesus that we see three times here that he's going to bring, it's not what you find in the courthouse across the street. Imagine if someone beats me up on my way home from church, robs me, and the police apprehend the fellow, and they come and show up at my house, and they say, ah, we got the fellow, we'll be convicting him, he's going to jail for a long time. That's justice today, right? I'm glad the man's in jail. Maybe I get my property back, maybe not. But if I do get my property back and the policeman hands it to me, 
here you go, Joel, here's what you lost. Is that sufficient? No. That doesn't change the nightmares I may now have as I head home. It may not change the fear I live with. What about the scars I might be bearing right now the rest of my life? Friends, the word for justice here is not simply punishment for evil. It's restoration to righteousness. It is healing for humanity. It is agony. All the agony you got completely abolished. That is what our servant brings. Can you imagine happiness and holiness coexisting in our world? That's the kind of justice Jesus is going to bring. And that, my friends, is what our hearts truly long for. Look at verses 2 and 3. I love this. You move from how the servant is related to God to now how the servant relates to us, to a hurting humanity, to the bruised and the faint. We see Jesus does not cry aloud or lift up his voice to terrify in the streets. You see, he is a servant who's come to rescue those who are beat up, those who are fouled up. He's gentle to the messed up, the mucked up, the screwed up. That's who this Jesus is, this servant. What do you need to break a bruised reed? All you got to do is just lean on it a little bit. A child asked me last week, can I blow out the Advent candles? (laughs) He did it with no effort at all, right? That's the imagery here. Folks who are fragile, who are easily quenched. But this servant will never quench them. He'll never break them. In fact, he treasures them. Alec Motyer, he writes, I love this, To this servant, nothing is useless. Even the bruised reed, which is useless as a support for anything else. Neither is anything like a smoldering wick, too far gone towards extinction. Nothing is useless to this servant. Some of us need to hear, as we start a new year, that we are useful to Jesus Christ. We may dress up nice, we may come in here, we wear a smile, but inside I know some of us, sometimes it's only just barely a flame, right? Just the spark is all I have left. It's no coincidence you're here today. Today is a divine appointment. Jesus is calling you and saying, you're not useless to me. I have much use for you. If you're a bruised reed, he wants to bind you up. If you're a flickering flame, he wants to fan that. Flan your flame to fire. Those embers to a flame by the power of his spirit. I love that we had those different moments of meditation. I know Tatum read some of them before the service, you know, during Advent. But I couldn't wait to get back to Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, which we use most of the year, where Jesus calls out to those who are weary, those who are heavy laden. Anybody come here with burdens today? Jesus holds out his heart gentle and lowly and says, I want to give you my rest. See, the church is made up of those who are helpless and hopeless, and he gathers us together. The church is not supposed to be a group of the powerful, the intellectuals, the great, those who have their act all together. No. Jesus gathers those who are weak and needy, those who are seen as foolish in this world. Heart City Church is a gathering of those who are low and despised in need of help. If you don't think, you need to get over yourself, because you are. You are low and despised and in need of much help. That's why I love verse 4 here, because when we get that, it says, Jesus will not grow faint or discouraged. What's that about? It means that Jesus is going to face disappointment with us. <laughs> you realize that? We aren't easy to shepherd. Some of us, it's taken a long time to just get to where we are, and we still see so much in us, right? That's still a mess. 
we're broken, we're fearful, we're stubborn, we're slow to learn. Oh, remember the 12 disciples? <laughs> and yet Jesus won't get discouraged with you. He will never give up on us. That's the good news here. You know, I loved it. You know what our greatest strength is here at Heart City Church? What is Heart City's greatest strength? In our Friday meeting, Vilas was just praying to God in the middle of it, and he says, our greatest strength is our dependence on you. Heart City's greatest strength is our dependence on Almighty God. It's not found in us. I think that actually explains our sudden interruption in verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Why does God say this? Why does he interrupt his song about the servant with this, this, this introduction about himself? Huh. Because he knows that now by nature, in this winter world we live in, we are blind to our utter dependence on our great God. You and I were created to contemplate the heavens, to look up at the blue sky, the incredible clouds, to go out on a dark night and to see just this amazing panorama of stars beyond what we could count or number. I was made to pause and marvel over the fact that I'm up here alive, breathing, and preaching. <laughs> I went to night, bed last night, and all night long, I never once had to think about, i got to keep breathing to stay alive. <laughs> That's what God has done. I'm to awe over the amazing thing that I can go out for an afternoon walk on a day when it's actually a little bit warmer. All these things are meant to point me to the fact that I exist in a universe that is clearly and intelligently designed by an awesome, infinite creator who stands outside of it, outside of time and space. Why don't I think that? Why don't we think that? What happened to us? Well, the Bible opens, and in the first three chapters, it tells us what happened. You see, God created this world essentially with three tiers. God at the top, humanity made in his image in the middle, and then the created order underneath us. That was the perfect order meant to be maintained. God, us, creation. Our thoughts fixed on God above all the time, just marveling. And every time we find something good in his creation, it just causes us to thank him all the more. But then the first humans, Adam and Eve, in chapter 3, they flipped everything upside down when they listened to the serpent, the evil magician. They put created things above loving God. And with that, our world began to get frigid and cold, Darkness and disorder entered in. And like Eustace now, we find ourselves craving the Turkish delight that does never satisfy. <laughs> and it alienates us from God and others the more we trust in them. You realize that idolatry is why our world is messed up today? It's not just an ancient people problem. It's a, the biggest problem of moderns today. I know I am tempted. Are you tempted to just laugh at those silly Israelites bowing down before a golden calf? Are you ever tempted to just kind of like, what silly people they are? And Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. He's like, what the hell's going on here? God is here. We're here to worship him. What do you think if those Israelites, what would they think if they jumped in the time machine and come forward into the future? Don't you think they would find us equally comical? We're devoted to images all day long. We run ourselves ragged for entertainment, for comfort, for materialism. Actually, let's not worry about what they might think of us hypothetically. Let me ask you this question, and I want you to think about this this week. What does the risen servant, our Lord Jesus, think as he looks down on our culture? 
What does he think? I think Jesus looks down and his heart is hurt by the idolatry of 21st century consumer culture, our consumer culture. What does Jesus see? He sees our homes and our communities are filled with shrines. Shrines to our materialism, shrines to sports. But there are more people watching the games last night than in church today. Shrines to sex, shrines to self. Oh, how many likes did I get today? <laughs> many in the world today, right now, live on less than $2 a day. And my fridge and my closet are full and I crave more. We're more invested in the dramas that we see on the screens in our homes than we are in the real-life dramas of our neighbors who are really hurting. Parents place a golf club, a tennis racket, a baseball in our children's hands. It's age three or four, right? And they spend the next 15 years or so rushing them to practice in games all the time and hope that they might be that rare prodigy who can then become their own idol for others. We stare at others' bodies lustily or we live to pamper our own image for that brief little moment before the wind blows over us and then we're gone and we're dust. Idolatry is our problem. John Calvin once said, well, our hearts are idol factories, pumping them out nonstop, day after day. Oh, if I only had this. Oh, once I get to this. Jesus looks down. And his heart hurts as he watches us worship these idols of our own making. His heart hurts as he sees the darkness and the cold that we have welcomed in. Think of all the mental disorders, addictions. I'm on ground zero in the hospital. Divisions in our culture, divorce, disease, death, they all abound. Do you see why the very first commandment Moses came down with? What was number one? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. You do not worship any other gods. It forbade idolatry. Number one. Tim Keller says, why was this one the first? He says this. We never break the other commandments, the other nine, without breaking the first one. You realize that? You would never break any other nine commandments if you could actually obey the first. He's saying every wrong that we commit is actually due to our own idolatry. And as we do, we forge our own chains We create our own prisons for us to be in. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? Praise be to God that he sent his servant. As once again, now he addresses him here in verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you. This is the servant. In righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. We've broken the covenant with God. He keeps the covenant. A light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Praise be to God that he sends his servant down to our earth, not to bully us, but to love us by shining the light again and again and again, multiple exposures of the gospel till we finally begin to believe and get it. You and I are, we're in prison as we try to find meaning and purpose in everything God created and not God. We give our emotional allegiance to created things that don't satisfy. We believe something other than God can satisfy us. What I've learned is that doesn't work. 
I'm 47 years old, and I've discovered that life is full of ever-diminishing pleasures. Ever-diminishing pleasures. Toys, achievements, sex, food, drink, all these things which are so great. Do you ever reach that original high again? No. Because they weren't meant to satisfy. They're meant to point us to Him. Because our hearts are ever restless till they find their rest in our God. And this passage is so great to start off a new year because God in mercy brings us back. Jesus comes in sight to bring in the spring, to bring in new things. In love, God sent his servant as a covenant. That's an interesting way of putting it. He's a promise, a promise that God would restore us in him. And Jesus came and did exactly that. He took your sin, all of your shame upon himself when he hung there on the cross He entered into the darkness as he hung there naked for us. And he paid for all of our sins. Every last thing that you've ever regretted doing. Everyone for all who simply believe. And God then raised him from the dead as the start of a new humanity. Look at the risen Jesus and that's your future. He didn't merely want to restore what we lost of ourselves, but he wanted to make us more glorious than we were in the beginning. We're not going back to Eden. We're going to something greater. The new creation. We're going to be made like Jesus. Each and every one of you I'm looking at, you're going to be made like Jesus. When I see you in glory, I'm going to be like, wow, look at you now. And if I wasn't perfectly sanctified, I would fall down and worship you. That's just how glorious we're going to be one day. And why does God do this? That's the question, right? Why does God do this? Why does God hold forth both his holiness and perfect happiness for us to take a hold of? For his glory. It's all about him. And he's the only one worthy of that, and not our idols. So here's what we need to understand. Worship of God, coming here every week, spending every day with your Lord in prayer and over his word, that is the answer to idolatry that divides us. Our idols and our self-worship, that's why we fight and hurt each other. When I don't get what I want (laughs) and someone keeps it from me, what happens? Right? All the divisions in our country, all the divisions in our neighborhoods, all the divisions in our family, they always come because we're worshiping idols. Always. The moment you impact my worship of my idol, <laughs> interrupt what I love, oh, I'm coming to get you, right? That's, that's how it is. That's why all the fighting goes on today. But when we're all glorifying and enjoying God, guess what happens? A new reality. We're all united. We actually come into unity with one another, focused on the same glorious God. That's the new reality we're heading towards and are tasting even now. You see, Jesus has come, and like Aslan, he has roared. And the Father declares new things. Verse 9, our second, behold. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The lion of the tribe of Judah has roared and winter is already meeting its death and we're proof. You and I, this should be really encouraging. We are proof. Look at us. We're a bunch of people who would never get along on our own. I guarantee you. (laughs) We would never get along on our own. But we come together once a week and we have unity that no one else can have unless you're a Christian because we're united in glorifying the God who has made us for himself. Beginning year number four, and we should be celebrating that all things are new in Christ. There's a new covenant, 
and we have now been given his spirit. And we're all new creations in Jesus Christ, set free from Satan's grip. I don't have to live like the old Joel. I have to live like the old Nanette. Don't have to live like the old Tatum. We're free to live a new and a better way. And we're free to invite others to join in. By the way, it's not really us inviting people. God's the one handing out the invitations. We're just delivering people. Now, Jesus has not returned. I prayed that he would last night. He didn't come back. So here we are. Why didn't he come back? Because there are still old creations out there that have not been made new. And you and I are privileged to actually be God's servants today. God's servants on earth today. God's servants who he delights in. Do you realize that God delights in you as much as he delights in Jesus Christ, his own son? You ever wake up in the morning and say, God delights in me as much as he delights in Jesus Christ? I know that's hard to take in. There's scriptures to prove that. Let that sink in. If you're a believer, you're in Christ. You're a child of the Heavenly Father. And scripture says your Father delights in you no less than he delights in his only begotten beloved. How's that for a great way to start the new year? So let's seek to be servants of God, promoting the worship of God in our age of idolatry. I was reading Acts 17 yesterday, and I noticed Paul was provoked in his heart when he saw all the idols in that culture. And Paul didn't criticize those people. He didn't call them morons. No, Paul sought to win them to Christ Jesus. He said, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Guess what? Let earth receive her king. And he knew that some would be one to the good news. That was better news than any of those idols could ever deliver. So I close with this. God has promised to make all things new. That's what we find here. That's good news for a new year. My question is, are we provoked by all the idols that we see out there and in here? So let's start mocking these idols that demand our emotional allegiance. Let's start mocking them, just like God mocks them. Because they never deliver on what they promise, right? Let's stop the idol production and prepare more room in our hearts to receive our king. Let's be on the offense, too, preparing ourselves for what God has in store. And we can only do that by taking in the word of God daily, by leaning into Sunday sermons, by taking in the grace of the sacraments, and by a whole lot of prayer, a whole lot of prayer. I've been reading on revival over the last five or six weeks. The warm winds of revival blow when people get weary of the winter. Anybody weary of the winter? There's a guy, he's called Count Zinzendorf. He actually started the Moravian movement in the early 18th century. It actually started with one refugee. One refugee. Soon became a small church. They were studying God's word week after week, and praying literally nonstop. In fact, over 100 years they were praying nonstop. People praying hour after hour, praying for revival. And these folks saw their neighbors. They saw their loved ones. They saw even their world under the weary winter, under the thumb of Satan. And hearts provoked, they began to plead that God would open doors for them to share the good news. They wanted to see many, many who were imprisoned set free, of their idolatry and it began to grow and grow 
and grow. And within 15 years, we started with two people and this little tiny church. They had sent out within 15 years 70 missionaries. Modern historians uh, credit them with setting the plate for today's mission movements. And one historian posits that they would actually be the world's largest denomination, except that the church plants would often give themselves to other denominations who are struggling. And it all started with a praying people who saw their privilege to participate in seeing God's blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Friends, I'm excited about 2023. It's a new year and a new opportunity to do mattering things and to witness new things spring forth as God glorifies himself in each and every one of us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and thank you for a new year. You've privileged us to gather together on the very first day of the new year. And Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will be done and we want to see your name hallowed. We begin to blow through our community but will you start with us in our hearts? We long to see many people come to know Jesus, and we long to delight in Jesus more and more. We need you to rescue us from our idolatry, and we need you to rescue our neighbors. So will you rend the heavens and come down and do it to the glory of your name? We long to see new things in this new year, and we pray and trust you will provide us many blessings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.